Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, that we, meet, we may come and learn how you work in each, and each of our lives individually, and that we as a family of God can come to worship you and to share, share those wonderful things and the challenges we have, and that we may lift up in prayer things that we are concerned with, and that, Lord, we know that you can, you can uh, solve them. Lord, we do all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Nice to see you back, Frank, Carolyn. Good morning, all you guys. We, we played a little past the baton this morning. So I'm up here, and I'm going to be bringing you the word for today, and it's about Coronation Day. This is the scripture that it's referring to. Blessed is the man who endures trial, for he will receive the crown of life. That's in James 1.12. To the Christian, death is said in the Bible to be a coronation. The picture here is that of a regal prince, who after his struggles and conquests in an alien land, returns to his native country and court to be crowned and honored for his deeds. The Bible says we are pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land. This world is not our home. Boy, we know that, don't we? Our citizenship is in heaven, and someday all our battles on this earth will be over, and we will enter that heavenly home. To the one who has been faithful, Christ will give a crown of life. Paul said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all of those who have loved his appearing. That's in 2 Timothy 4.8. When D.L. Moody was dying, he looked up to heaven and said, earth is receding, heaven is opening, this is my coronation day. Never forget, if you're a Christian, you are a child of the king. And here is the hope for today. We feel discouraged when we don't seem to fit in here. We become despondent at the thought of leaving. Both of these reactions come when we forget that we are only passing through. Our heavenly home awaits. We are citizens of heaven. Amen.
to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. Our dead to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way From the cross to the cross I dead to pay From the cross to the grave From the grave to the sky Lord, I lift your name on high To show the way From the earth to the cross I dead to pay From the cross to the grave from the grave to the sky Lord, I lift your name on high Lord, I lift your name on Testament scripture day is Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me besides peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me 
In the presence of my enemies, you honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Say the Lord's Prayer. And think of the words as we say them. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Testament reading today comes from from Acts chapter 4 verses 5 through 12. The next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there along with Cleophas, John, Alexander and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded by what Power, or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? 
let me clearly state to, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures, scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And if you'd like to join us in a responsive reading. Father, I thank you for being the God of every blessing, the fount of every joy, and the source of everything good. I know it is in your heart to bless the lives of your children. And as your child, I desire your blessings upon my life. Thank you that your blessings enrich my life, leave me and leave me without sorrow. Bring me the treasures of your grace and express all the kindness of your favor. Father, bless me and make me a blessing. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, all belongs to you. And for some reason, you've entrusted a different, various amounts to different ones. But you still call on us to give back, to share, some of which, although you've shared with us, you've called us also to share with others. So Lord, as the gifts that we've given today, the gifts that we give of our talents and of our of our money, whatever that, that is being given back, may it be done to further your glory, Lord, and be done in the spirit that you wish it to be. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, as I have mentioned before, we're going to start a series on the book of Ruth. And uh, part of the reason is we wanted to go into the Old Testament. And the whole Bible is inspired by God. And, and uh, I think it's really good to, to get our roots as believers, go down deep into the New Old Testament. Of course, into creation, but also into the Old Testament. So... Um, Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who brings life, that you are a God who um, calls us into a relationship with you, calls us to live wisely on this earth. And Lord, you speak to us, and I pray that you will speak to each and every one of us out of your word and help us, having heard to obey, to live in communion with you, and delight in doing your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to start, just do five verses out of Ruth, because I want to set the stage this morning for um, the book of Ruth, kind of set the historical scene and so on. So I'll read the text. Ruth chapter 1, uh, 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. 
The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malahon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So, as I said, I want to begin to talk about the, the historical setting with this, and we see a whole lot just in verse 1. I'm going to read it again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And so, you know, as a good story, this is, this is really regarded as one of the finest short stories ever written. Um, they say that even in the universities, they will, they will use this uh, in literature classes and writing classes in order to demonstrate what uh, good writing is all about. Uh, and it's a beautiful story. And, but I wanted to, um, just to remind us that, that the Old Testament, especially these stories, were, were passed on orally generation to generation. And at some point they're written down, but a lot of this comes out of what we call oral tradition. When we were in Turkey, um, we, uh, next, next uh, slide, um, we did a seminar uh, it was part of Scriptures in Use. Do you, do you know that ministry? Down in Green Valley. It's headquartered in Green Valley. And we, out of that ministry, we were offering seminars on orality in Turkey. And so what we would do is we would have, uh, we would do seminars, and, and as part of that seminar, they would end up with a, some kind of uh, demonstration of a word. We would take a story, and this on the slide is a workshop we did in Istanbul in uh, 2000, what was it, 2010. <coughs> and and the, at the end, you can see they are demonstrating uh, the story was the woman caught in adultery. And so they were acting that out, doing a play. And they only have a short time to, you know, put that all together. Well, as part of this, um, we would have them, give them about 20 minutes to memorize the story. 11 verses, and they would, you know, do the, do the best they could in 20 minutes uh, to memorize this story. And there was one guy, and we, we did that, we gave him about 20 minutes, and then we'd ask for volunteers. You know, does anybody want to re recall this story? And I was, I was absolutely blown away. One of the guys, uh, and it was in this particular uh, workshop, um, was a, dressed in village, villager clothes. So he was very obviously from a village. And uh, even though it was in Istanbul, he was, I think, from Iznik. And he, you know, they had 20 minutes to memorize these 11 verses. And so, you know, when I asked for volunteers, this fella recited this almost word for word in, in 20 minutes. And I went, whoa. <laughs> I mean, this is incredible. You know, maybe he's just an absolute genius. I don't know. But, but what it reminded me of is that uh, the incredible 
way that orality, the, these stories were passed on generation to generation, particularly in the villages. And they would have, a lot of times they would have a, um, uh, a person who's designated to be the storyteller in the, in the village, in tribal societies. Uh, I know they do that down in Africa, and they'll have a, they'll have a storyteller, and that storyteller not only tells the stories, but is in charge of kind of passing the values that are contained in those stories generation to generation. And so this is what I think happened here. This beautiful story, and you can understand it better when you think of it in terms of orality, that this was meant to be told uh, generation after generation. And of course, eventually it's written down. Some say it was written down by Samuel. We don't know uh, exactly who wrote it down. But we do know that um, it talks about David. So it had to have been at least during the time of David, maybe sometime after the time of David. But it doesn't mention Solomon. So uh, in Ruth chapter 4. Now these are the generations. And this is the, uh, the end of the story. Now these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Solomon, and Solomon begat Boaz. And Boaz is going to be uh, one of our heroes in this story. He marries Ruth. And, uh, and Boaz begat Obed, okay? He marries Ruth and has Obed. Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. So we see there that, um, and Solomon is not mentioned, and so he's the next in line after David. So probably, but not necessarily during the time of David. This could have been amended later on. We don't know. But it's an incredible story of God's faithfulness. And two people, Ruth, uh, well, really three people, Naomi, Ruth, and then Boaz, who uh, had faithfulness in, in the Lord. So... Uh, an incredible story, and it took place during the time of the Judges. All right? Uh, judges 3, verses 5 through 7, read this way. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and probably some otherites too. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own son, daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So this characterizes these verses, what was going on in the nation of Israel at that time. If you remember, um, in the book of Exodus, Robert could tell us very easily, in the, book of, in the book of Exodus, we see Moses leading the children of Israel out into the wilderness area um, and they, where they lived for 40 years, and then out of that then, they eventually get into the promised land. And, um, and then they begin, after the death of Joshua, they begin a time of what we call the judges. And they weren't judges in the sense of they were, uh, you know, the way that we think of judges. They were more like deliverers or heroes. And, and so there's a... There's a, um, a, a pattern that we see that takes place in the nation of Israel during this time. And it wasn't a pretty picture. I mean, it was, you know, it was a time of apostasy of the nation. And basically it went like this. Israel, Israel would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They'd do wrong. 
The people are given into the hands of their enemies. They cry out to God. Yahweh raises up a leader. The spirit of Yahweh comes upon the leader. The leader manages to defeat the enemy, and peace is regained. And so you had these huge cycles of, of apostasy you know, and downward cycle, and then you would see uh, the nation begin to be restored, and then they would go back into apostasy. So it was, a, it was a bad time. Well, the book of Judges, uh, so some takes place sometime during 1380 to 1050 BC, because we know the two bookends, we just don't know exactly when the book of, uh, book of Ruth took place. There were six major judges, six minor judges during this time of what we call the judges. And, it, and it's real interesting that this beautiful story takes place at a time in the nation of Israel that was a time of apostasy. I mean, it was not a pretty picture for the Israelites during this time. And they, they, they lived most of the time in walking away from the Lord. Furthermore, it says there was famine in the land. Famines were common since rainfall was sporadic, and most of the rain would fall in the colder months. So annual rainfall in Jerusalem, which was five miles away, is 21 inches. So we have 12 inches here. So it's not too unlike. How many of you been to Israel? Okay, all right. Uh, it's not too unlike the topography that we have here. Um, except, you know, there are certain parts that are more fertile, but a lot of it is, is semi-arid, you know, kind of climate. And, and most of their rainfall fell from November through April. So in the cooler months, they would get, you know, more rainfall, but just like us, they would have long seasons of no rainfall. And we've certainly seen that in, in Tucson in the last year. Uh, we're way, way below what we normally are. Well, if we were an agriculturally based uh, culture and economy like they were at that time, you know, subsistence farming, uh, we would be in tough shape. I mean, we can, we can bring our goods in from other places uh, through trucking and airplanes and so on. But uh, that's what had happened. There was famine and they couldn't live very well. And so, uh, and so Naomi and Elimelech and the two boys, Mahlon and Kilion, head into Moab. Now, they came from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, we know, of course, is the birthplace of Jesus. But the first reference we see to Bethlehem in the Old Testament is uh, Genesis 35, beginning verse 18. Through 20. As she breathed her last, they're talking about Rachel, the wife of um, Jacob, for she was dying. She named her son Ben-Oni, but his na father named him Benjamin. So that's Benjamin was the last of the, last of the 12 tribes. He was the youngest son of Jacob. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Uh, over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Bethlehem means the city of bread, <laughs> interestingly enough, and there's no bread at that time. As I mentioned, it's about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. 
and it becomes known later on as the city of David. But it's also known as Ephrathah or Ephrath. Um, and that some people say that that is the clan name for, uh, you know, for Bethlehem at that time. That the, the people of, of uh, Ephrath lived there. It was, uh, now, I'm not, we're not exactly sure how many people lived in Bethlehem, but it was a, it was a village. It was a very small town. I've, 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 somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I read that there were about 200 people in Bethlehem at that time. So a very small village, but it, not any more than 1,000. So it was a very small place. And it was at about 2,550 feet above sea level. So again, very much like Tucson, we're at about 2,500 uh, feet above sea level as well. And this is really important to understand this, that the structure of Israelite culture during the time of the judges was what we could call a patriarchal tribal society. Okay, That is, it's patriarchal. Everything came out of, you know, it, it's all... Uh, it's, it all comes from the father, and the father would be the patriarch of a clan or a family, a larger family. And it was tribal. Uh, there was really no national, no national identity at that time. They probably would not identify themselves as, well, maybe they would identify themselves as Israelite, but it was pretty much the, the family and then, and then beyond the family, the larger family, which would be a clan. And all the societal regulation, there, were no, there was no police force or anything, but everything would take place within that clan or that family unit. All right, so in the book of Ruth then, when their famine comes on the land, then what we see is that, that the economic security for a for everybody, you know, in that area would have been the, the, the clan or the family. There wasn't any, you know, you couldn't get welfare, so to speak, like we do here. It all came from the family. And the, the family head, the oldest male, his job was to take care of that family, economically, socially, discipline those who, who uh, you know, go outside of what they should be doing, all of it revolves around the family. So when Naomi and Elimelech and Malon and Kilion leave Bethlehem, they are leaving their social and economic security system behind. And they're going into Moab where there's nothing. They're strangers. So, you know, it's a, it was a big deal that they left. So they went then in probably into a more fertile region of Moab, and it says that they stayed there about 10 years. But they went from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Now this is a, a view of a Moab mountain range uh, from the Jordan Valley. So you can see they went downward. You go downward from Jerusalem area, Bethlehem, which is in the hill country, you go down into the plain, the Jordan, what's called the Jordan Rift Valley, and then you would go up into the, uh, the hills of Moab. Okay? Uh, Caroline and I were there. We, we didn't take this picture, but we were there, um, I don't know, six years ago or something like that, four, four or five, six years ago. Uh, we were in that area, 
and you could see these, these, the, you know, this hill country of Moab. It's in present-day Jordan. Um, we were in Amman, Jordan. So probably when Elimelech left Bethlehem, he probably sold his land either voluntarily or was forced into debt. So he's leaving everything behind. And the journey into Moab then was about 50 miles. So, as I said, you go downward, you go through the Jordan Rift Valley, uh, cross the Jordan, and then you go up and kind of around uh, into the, uh, the, the area of Moab. <coughs> and the word that's used in the Hebrew is one to signify a, a temporary journey. They did not intend to stay there. They just went in there for a short period of time. But we don't know what the rights of a foreigner would have been in, in Moab. Uh, certainly they're, they're foreigners. It's going to be tough. And it turned out to be very tough. Well, verse 2, it says, The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, as we mentioned, from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So Elimelech means, my God is king, or God is king. Naomi means pleasant, or lovely, or delightful, pleasant one, or my pleasant one. Um, Mahlon, this is interesting, it means weak or sickly. So imagine, you know, naming your first, we don't know which one was first born, but naming your son, this is my son weakly. <laughs> and as it turned out, he ended up dying. And then Kilion means failing or pining. So they take their two boys, sickly and pining, <laughs> into, into Moab, and it says they died there. But, uh, <laughs> didn't have a chance. Did, yeah, they didn't have a chance. <laughs> now, they go into the country of Moab. And Moab, um, if you remember, Abraham had left his home in the Ur of the, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is down in what's called the Fertile, fertile Crescent, down in the, uh, it's also called Mesopotamia, and, it, and Mesopotamia means the land between the two rivers, and it's present-day Iraq, and, the, um, and there were two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and that land between those two rivers was very fertile. That's why they call it the Fertile Crescent. And they were down at the southern end, almost down to, uh, uh, to the Gulf region. And it says he left her, the Chaldeans, with his father Terah, his nephew Lot, his wife Sarai, and left for Canaan. So God called them, uh, with Abraham and his father, to, to take this journey. And they would have gone up through, you know, up along the, either the Euphrates or the Tigris River and gone, gone up to Haran. We were in Haran, uh, I don't know, a number of years ago. And God spoke to Abraham. Um, Terah died in Haran. And God spoke to Abraham and said, continue your journey down. And so that's what he did. And Lot went with him. And when they got there, Abraham settled in the hill country, okay, or 
you know, where Bethlehem would be in, in Jerusalem and so on. But Lot chose the Jordan Rift Valley, which was actually below sea level. I think it's like a thousand, thousands foot below sea level. So it's very hot in the summer, uh, but very fertile because it has the Jordan River flowing through it. Well, that happened to be where Sodom and Gomorrah were. And if you remember the story, two angels came to Abraham and said that they were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels. <coughs> um, and so they went down and they encountered Lot and, and Lot, you know, and, and, and tell, told Lot, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to get out of here. And so Lot and his wife and two daughters left. Nobody else would go with them. But they left uh, Sodom and traveled and stayed in a cave. Well, Lot's in that cave, and the two daughters say, oh, by the way, as they're in flight, as they're leaving, uh, the angel of death told them, don't turn back and don't look back. Lot's wife looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. So there's three of them in a cave. <coughs> Lot and his two daughters. Well, they decided they needed progeny, the two daughters. And so they, they got a lot drunk, and they both, and they slept with them one after another so that they could raise up seed. Well, in Genesis 19, it says, So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son. She named him Moab. This is where we get Moab. He's the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son. She called him Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites. So the Moabites and the Ammonites then come out of the seed of Abraham um, and, and Lot and that whole family line. And then we see in Numbers, chapters 20, 22 through 24, there's the story of Balak. And the children of Israel, Moses is leading the children of Israel through the Sinai Desert, and they get, to, they get to where they're about to enter into the Promised Land, and the king of Moab says, I can't fight these Israelites. Um, I think there were probably two to three million Israelites at that time. Uh, it's a huge number. There were almost a million uh, men, uh, and so they had wives and children and so on. So we, we could say probably two or three million Huge crowd coming in, and they can't fight him. So the, the king of Moab, who is named Balak, hires Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. All right. He said, we can't defeat him, so let's, let's uh, put a curse on him. Balaam says, I'll do it, but I'm going to do what God says. And so um, God just repeatedly tells him blessings for the children of Israel. And, you know, he has all these oracles blessing the tribe of Israel, the Israelites. Well, when that didn't work, <laughs> then the Israelites, they, the Moabites said, well, we're not going to be able to defeat them that way, so let's try another way to do it. So what they did was they had the Israelites commit sexual adultery with the Moabite women. So if you, can't, if you can't defeat them by cursing, then, you know, send your women to uh, entice the Israelite men. 
Well, as a result, the families in Israelites began to worship the Baal Peor, and God's anger burned against them, and God struck down 24,000 Israelites who had worshipped the false god. So here's the setting then for the Moabites. Not a very, you know, not a very good beginning to the, to the Moabites. And as the children of Israel are going through Moab, that's when Moses dies up on Mount Nebo. Remember that story? And he's, he goes up and he sees the promised land. God said you can't go into the promised land, but you can see it. And then Moses died there on Mount the, uh, Nebo. So by the time of David, there were good relationships between the Moabites and the Israelites, but there's a rocky history there. Well, verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now there was no prohibition of marriage with, a Moabite, with Moabite women. Generally, they were not to, uh, to marry into um, other, you know, other tribes. <clears throat> but it was not forbidden to marry into the Moabite tribe. And as far as we know, the marriage probably took place at the end of the ten years that they were down, um, uh, that they were there in Moab, because there were no children from either marriage. So, where we see then this story is these three women then are setting out, um, you know, and they hear about uh, that the famine is ended and they, they head out, and we'll cover that uh, next, next week. But it's a story about two people who in the midst of a time of great apostasy, corruption, murder, intrigue, sexual immorality in Israel were people of character. That's what's so interesting. It's this contrast. You have this nation in apostasy and all this junk that's going on with the nation of Israel and, and then these two women, Ruth and Naomi, who are women of character. And the word that's used for Ruth is that says that she is a woman of noble character. And the Hebrew is hayol. She's a woman of hayol. And it means... She's virtuous and valiant. It's, it's used of, when it's used of men, it's used in the sense of a, a, a virtue, a, um, a mighty man, a mighty man of valor. Um, in fact, that's what's used to talk about Boaz, that he's a goel, no, I'm sorry, gibor hayil. He's a man of valor, a mighty man in the land. Well, then it says, after they lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was, left, Naomi was left with her two sons and her husband. I'm sorry, without her two sons and her husband. So, you know, Elimelech and Naomi and the two boys go into Moab full, and they come out empty. And that kind of sets the stage then for the rest of the story. Now, the eldest son would have had the responsibility for his mother, but he died. Next, the younger son would have had responsibility for the mother, but she's, he is dead as well. So Naomi is alone with no visible means of support and two daughters-in-law whom she's really responsible for. 
So at the end of the 10 years then in Moab, Naomi's fate is bitter. And she later on, she talks to the women. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, uh, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. She has no land, no way, no one to provide for her in a male-dominated society, no one to turn to except the Lord, and she believes that God is the one who has brought her to this place of helplessness and hopelessness. <clears throat> one commentator says this, driven from her homeland by famine, cruelly robbed of loved ones by death, a lonely old widow sits abandoned in a foreign land. That's where, that's where we are. I mean, everything is stripped away from her. She has nothing. You know, absolutely nothing. No land, no husband, no sons, no nothing. The only hope that she has is God. So what can we learn from this? First thing is that God is at work even when we don't realize it. And some of you have faced times in your lives when everything was stripped away. You didn't have anything. All the visible means of support, all the things that you had planned, all your hopes and dreams are dashed. And, and probably all of us will face those kinds of times in the future as well. When everything seems at a loss. Ruth 1.19, that I referred to a little bit ago. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Isn't that the way we feel sometimes? I went away full, I thought things were going great, and I come back empty. All my dreams have been dashed. The Lord has afflicted me, she says. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Well, what we as believers, and this to me is one of the areas that we as believers, that we are in a very unique position in the world. Because Bad things happen to us as well as to people in the world. Isn't that right? I mean, being a Christian is no guarantee that your life is going to be a bed of roses. And it might be, but you're going to be a lot of thorns along the way with those roses, as, uh, as Linda knows. <laughs> you know, life can be really tough. But at rock bottom, we believe in the goodness of God, don't we? And we believe that as believers, that God is at work. And when, when, when it looks like the darkest, is sometimes the very moment and time and circumstances that God has brought our way to produce in us what he wants us to be going forward. Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And for us as believers, because we have this relationship with God, we believe 
that even in the midst of, and even and uh, and often in the very circumstances that look like they are, you know, they're going to destroy us, God is actually at work to engineer what he's going to do with our lives. And he may be, at that very moment, he may be producing in us the character of Christ to be able to help us in those times as he, as he moves us on in our lives. That's not, you know, I, I'm not, that's hard to fathom at that point. But it may be those very circumstances, and that's what we see in this story. These circumstances become the very circumstances that God used to bring this nation and make this nation a blessing to the nation, to other nations. And as I said, there's often a great divide between those who have a relationship with Christ and those who don't. We both go through tough times, but we believe that God is at work even in the midst of very negative circumstances. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our perspective. I'm going to say that again. God's work and God's faithfulness and God's love and God's goodness are not dependent on our perspective. He is at work. And so what we have to do is kind of take a step back from our circumstances, take a step back and say, you know what, God is good. You know, I don't see it right now. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see the circumstance. It looks really negative to me. But I believe that God is good, and I believe that God is at work on my behalf. As I say, <clears throat> that is not easy at that point. Naomi was at the bottom. But that didn't stop God from working on her behalf, even in those very trying circumstances, and even though she didn't see it at that point. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And our promise to us as believers is that when we are poor in spirit, that ours is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the very building blocks that God uses to build our lives. Oswald Chambers says this, I will give my life to martyrdom. I will dedicate my life to service. I'll do anything. But do not humiliate me to the level of the most hell-deserving sinner and tell me that all I have to do is accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. The greatest spiritual blessing we receive is when we come to the knowledge that we are destitute. And we acknowledge that before God, that we are destitute. He can do nothing for us as long as we think we are sufficient in and of ourselves. We must enter into his kingdom through the door of destitution. I don't know if I have the next slide. Yeah, this is very interesting. In the, um, It's called the door of humility in the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. And in order to get into the church of nativity, of the nativity, which is where Christ, uh, you know, the, the little star is where they say that Christ was born, you have to kneel down and go through this door. I, th I think there are other doors as well, but there's this door of humility to remind us that we, we, it's only through humility that we come into the presence of Christ. It's only through humility and acknowledging our, you know, who we are and our spiritual poverty that we can enter into the things of God and enter into salvation. 
And our trust is often in our own goodness, but not in God's goodness. We trust in God as believers, even though we see nothing to confirm that God is either good or trustworthy. It's not our great faith in God, but it's our faith in a great God. God is great, loving, trustworthy, faithful, and good, even if we don't feel that way, or even acknowledge it at the time. It is God's character and faithfulness, not our character and faithfulness. That's what we depend upon. One time I was in seminary, and it was the second year, and I came face-to-face with Hebrew, (laughs) with with learning Hebrew, (laughs) a Hebrew class. And I was in the second semester of my Hebrew. No, I, I had just finished the first semester of Hebrew. And for some reason or another, Hebrew just took me down. I was, you know, I was, and I had been working, uh, supporting the family and studying and so on. And I, um, and I just reached the bottom. I was emotionally, I was spent. So I said, I just need to get away. And so, and you know, Caroline agreed and I went and I just spent about three days at a Catholic retreat center um, near Gordon-Conwell, which is where I was going to seminary, and just poured my heart out to God. And, and God spoke to me then, something that I'll never forget. And he, he said this to me. He said, it's not your hanging on to me that matters, it's me hanging on to you. I'm going to say that again. It's not, it's not that I'm hanging, you know, I was trying, trying to hang on to Jesus and trying to do things right. He said, it's not that, that's not what gets you through. It's me hanging on to you. He's the one. I'm his child. He's watching over me. It's not me trying to hang on to Jesus. It's Jesus hanging on to me. And that just, oh, you know, just I could just relax. Wait a minute. This is God's business. I'm his child. He's the one at work. Some of you may feel that God has abandoned you. Well, it's not dependent on whether you feel his presence or not. He's still with you. That's what we learn from this text. And our times of greatest loss are sometimes the time of greatest hope for us as believers. We don't see it, we don't feel it, but we believe it. Romans 5 Three through five. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And God is at work often in those times of extreme destitution and difficulty. God is at work shaping your character to be what he wants you to be. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't feel like it. But even at the bottom, we can trust in God's goodness. Naomi had to endure famine, a move to a foreign country, the loss of her husband, the loss of both sons, the loss of any visible means of support, which would usually accrue to widows. She had to endure the loss of her, all of this in order to go with Naomi. Ruth did, I'm sorry. We too often have losses in our lives And it's important to remember that God is still at work. It's not dependent on you. You are God's child. God has his hand on you. God is at work in your life. And God is blessing you, even though you see absolutely no evidence of that at that moment. 
And I think that's what we see in this, in this book of Ruth, is you know, these very stepping stones, these very, very character, all the stuff that was going on at this time in, Ruth, in Ruth's life and in Naomi's life are the very things that God uses to bless them later on in their lives. this week. Let us take the words, the words from Ruth, the story. Let us start to learn and understand what a beautiful story it is, how, how they can live, survive, and see your glory, Lord. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 